Welcome to Live Your Own Fit. Hi, I'm Pete Jacobs, Ironman Triathlon World Champion and Performance Coach. Coaching athletes and everyday people has meant dissecting my past achievements and the practices that I was consciously and subconsciously doing. There are so many mindset, goal setting and fitness techniques that I'd implemented back then that are now at the forefront of all good health and performance coaching programs and none more so than our Live Your Own Fit programs. Not to mention the huge amount of new nutrition science that is debunking old myths and boosting modern performances. Hi, I'm Jamie L. Jacobs, co-founder of Live Your Own Fit. I am a health, well-being and performance coach and six times 70.3 distance age group champion. We've been practicing these natural food patterns for years now and have so much to share with you. Did you know that with just a few lifestyle changes, you can go from fatigued to energized? Jamie and I are obsessed with understanding metabolic and mitochondrial health, as well as how our mindset connects everything for both everyday and athletic performance. We help you change from a sugar burner to a flexibly fueled human, able to burn fat all day at rest or during exercise, as well as helping you build fitness without burnout or injury and learn mindset strategies to help you train, race or perform day to day. Our aim is to help you see the big picture so you can learn about and change the things you need to and not worry about the little symptoms that will improve naturally as your health and energy increase. On this podcast, we talk to guests about everything relating to health, energy and performance. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome, Professor Grant Schofield, to our Live Your Own Fit podcast. Um, Just to introduce Grant to everyone here today, most of you will know of Grant, but Grant is um, an ex-professional triathlete, um, lined up as a professional on the Kona start line several times. He's a world-leading professor specialising in metabolic health and performance for human potential. He is a professor at the Auckland Technology University, University of, Technology. of Technology and author of several books, What the Fat, What the Fat Recipes, What the Fat for Sports Performance, and What the Fast. So we're very, very, very grateful to have you here with us today. Thanks for having me, guys. It's awesome. Um, great to be here virtually. Excellent. Um, and so if you didn't get uh, get it from that introduction, everybody, uh, we are going to be talking a lot about fat burning today. <laughs> Awesome. Love to talk about fat burning. <laughs> um, so I'm going to open up with a question, Grant. Um, and uh, it's all about, you obviously work with a lot of athletes around sports and performance and um, optimal performance. Um, but why and how does eating a whole food, low carb diet really help improve our everyday health and everyday sports performance? Oh, that's a big question. Yeah. I feel like often the basics get miss um, you know, they don't often get spoken about in these health podcasts. And yep. a lot of people out there might be eating the typical sad diet, um, yep. but they don't know why they should change. Well, I mean there's a whole bunch of basic reasons around food quality, but I, I think even back a step from that to think about basic human physiology is uh, and one thing we don't think about here is that when we burn two different types of things that can be used as fuel, glucose, sugar, or uh, fat, then the metabolic consequences of that are actually completely different. They're, they're, they're just completely different effects on the body. 
uh, and they're different physiology and they and they're not that one's bad but I guess my hypothesis is if you go down to the local uh, food hall and you took one of those people and brought them into my lab and you put them on a treadmill and you started them walking and eventually got them running and then you measured their breath by breath gas analysis which one thing about that is you can estimate what they're using for fuel then one thing you'd notice is that they they they're carb burners they exclusively burn carbs to provide energy and that's okay. The carbs do that. They're really good at helping provide energy, particularly at top-end performance. Uh, but if you went back in time in a time machine or, or actually just travel into, the, say, the remote Pacific where people are still subsistence living off, off whole food, stuff that was recently alive running around or nature swimming somewhere or growing somewhere, then you would see a completely different metabolism. When they were sitting around and moving slowly, then they were exclusive fat burners and it's not until they start to exercise at a very high intensity they become carb burners. And so that sort of person has what we think of as normal human physiology. Um, they burn fat when they need to, and they burn carbs when they need to. And unfortunately, because of oh, there's a whole history of what we've thought of and when people have decided we should advise people to eat food for health, um, the, the diet heart hypothesis and the lipid hypothesis, this idea of vilifying fat, particularly saturated fat, uh, the, the, either the unintended or, or intended consequences, depending on how much you're feeling like it's a conspiracy theory of the food industry at the time. Uh, we've ended up with a diet that, that pushes our physiology into a state where it really can't access the fat that it, it should normally be relying on as its predominant fuel source and then if you think about that more you're in a situation where uh if you're burning just carbs then that's an inflammatory situation um it's anabolic so it's 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 growth um and there's nothing wrong with growth but growth without non-growth uh is is chronic disease and so that's what clogs your arteries uh, and that's what therefore causes heart disease and stroke um, and Alzheimer's and dementia, vascular dementia. Uh, when uncontrolled growth is, is the basis of cancer uh, and at this inflamed brain is the basis of, of anxiety and depression and, and poor mental health, which uh, is the, and, and rotten teeth. Um, so you'd say the most prevalent childhood disease, rotten teeth, the most prevalent adolescent disease, poor mental health and suicide, um, and the most prevalent adult diseases of heart disease, stroke, diabetes, cancer, all have the exact same cause, just prolonged growth and inflammation without ever being able to turn it off. And so a whole food diet that, that gets the refined sugar and carbs out allows you to, to be able to uh, turn off those growth signaling things. This is what fasting is the extreme end of. So fasting is not anabolic, it's catabolic, it's non-growth, it's tidying up cells, it's anti-inflammatory, it's immune boosting. Uh, and you can't be in that state the whole time either. So this normal human physiology is one of that cycles naturally and we just don't do as a human. So that's the long answer, Jamie, I guess, to, to the point, why is a whole food diet good for us? Because it allows us to access our normal human physiology. We're just the way that we were supposed to be is, is, a, is a dual fuel system. Uh, actually, since I'm talking to some Queenslanders, and I think this is an important thing because you only see it in Queensland now, really, um, 
when you when you catch a Brisbane taxi, um, you would see these cars that are a dual fuel car, and I think the dual fuel Brisbane taxi is, is so similar to the human body. So they they mm. typically run on liquefied petroleum gas. Um, it's a cheap fuel. It burns very clean. The byproducts are oxygen and water, uh, and they'll get. Uh, nearly a million kilometers out of an engine running on this because it's such a clean burning fuel. The trouble with this gas as a fuel is when you go to actually have any top end performance out of your car, it just doesn't go very well. Uh, and so, so really fast sprinting in cars, actually you do with better with petrol. And petrol, but petrol is a dirty burning fuel, um, creates pollution, but it also creates uh, uh, hydrocarbons and other things that really damage the engine. And so an engine running just on that gets such a short lifespan. Uh, the, the, old, the old Australian Ford Falcon running on a dual fuel system is so much like the, the human system running on carbs and fat. Um, this is this I always thought when I'm in one of those taxis that the drivers don't seem to appreciate my analogy. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As they're eating their donuts. And so, yeah, well, that's right. That's correct. Yeah, correct. So some of those, um, some of the different effects of burning sugar instead of burning fat, um, oxidative stress, burning sugar, lower amounts of oxygen, lower blood flow. Uh, can you give us a bit more information about those detrimental effects of burning sugar? Well, they, when you're burning sugar, there's a sort of trilogy, I think, of, uh, of, of three things. So there's glycation, so glucose, sugar in your blood, um, attaches itself to proteins and lipids in the body. And, of course, the whole body's made up of proteins and lipids, particularly cell walls. And then these, if they're not sorted, turn into advanced glycated end products, which are a problem for the body. So those in themselves create um, oxidative stress and inflammation. Uh, the burning of sugar itself is creates reactive oxygen species as a byproduct. Uh, and so you get this sort of trilogy of glycation, inflammation, oxidative stress, uh, and they all cause one another when you burn uh, sugar for fuel. Now, in the short term, that's not actually a problem, and in fact, um, may be essential for life. Like we need, we need uh, signalling from these molecules. It has a use. It's part of the immune system function. Uh, it may be one of the reasons we crave sugary food when we have a stress response, because we. Uh, it's one of the reasons that when we're when we're stressed, uh, the gut junctions the tight junctions open up and let through lipopolysaccharides which are profoundly inflammatory um, perhaps you're preparing for for those type of situations where the immune system is going to need uh activating but prolonged activation of reactive oxygen species inflammation and glycation through sugar those three things is just a never-ending two-way circle and uh you know that's the basis of of poor health and actually a loss of a dozen years of quality of life for almost every human in the modern developed world, including Australia and New Zealand. So, you know, that's, that's I think, and if, the base of it. And if you, when you're lipids, which are fats, for anyone not familiar with the term lipids, so when you're saying the, the glycation of the lipids, yeah. um, that's likely to cause the plaque and calcium scores and all of that to increase? Well, well there's, there's another whole thing there. So, so um, so lipids, well, there's things, there's 
low density lipoproteins. There's, there's cholesterol, we, we're really lipoproteins. We think of these things, they carry um, fat and cholesterol out of the liver and they, they're like buses, they're just delivering it around the body. Mm. And, and that's what they do. Like without that, you wouldn't be able to deliver energy of that sort or cholesterol for what its other essential uses are. So those, those lipoproteins are traveling around delivering fats to be used for fuel and, and other things like that. Uh, what happens is that there's a little receptor molecule on there that gets uh, damaged. It's either oxidized or it's glycated. And it's almost like your key card to your uh, hotel door won't work anymore. It's not recognized. So these lipoproteins can't go back and get recycled where they're supposed to go. And um, so they're just sitting around in the bloodstream and you're accumulating these little uh, LDL particles. And then they have to go somewhere in the end and they get small enough because they dump up all their cargo eventually. Um, and they just go into this, the epithelial wall of the, of the, of the blood vessels. And that's atherosclerosis, that's plaques, that's heart disease, that's stroke, that's vascular dementia. And so, so yeah, it, it's, that's the process. People think, Oh, I'm eating saturated fat or, um, I need to eat more of this, uh, you know, fiber and that sort of thing. It's nothing to do with the process. The process is glycation and, and oxidative stress. I remember reading a while ago, if this is correct, um, that also having high blood sugar levels will actually um, damage the endothelial walls of the cell. The little fingers of the veins themselves actually kind of get stripped away at that point when blood sugar is high. So that's yeah. sort of opening yourself up to more plaque buildup as well. Is that? Yeah. Yep. There's right? that. And then, the, and then you've got another whole mechanism that's, that's unknown to do with this as well, because, when the sugar in your blood's high and insulin's high, um, at the kidney, you hold on to more sodium just because of that. Uh, and therefore you hold on to more fluid, therefore your blood pressure's higher, therefore anything that's any little plaque that's sitting in the blood vessels, you know, the river is flowing faster um, with more pressure. Those are more likely to break off, just, just in, like a river. And so, you know, multiple levels, you've got, the same mechanism having different and, and negative effects. Yeah. So, oh yeah, I've got oh. one more follow-up to when you mentioned <laughs> craving before and you mentioned low energy and, and energy is my favorite topic. Um, so you mentioned one of the processes that may be causing people to crave sugars. Um, and another theory of mine, and I'd like to get your opinion is that stress also causes that inflammation, as you said, yeah. But then the inflammation shuts down the ability for the mitochondria to produce energy via oxygen and fat and, you know, in an easy, easy way. So that lack of being able to produce energy, also then you get this feeling of low energy in the brain, which is just a, a feeling of low energy, but mm. it's actual inability to produce energy as well. Yeah, and, and then it's a cycle. It's a yeah, cycle. It's a cycle, yeah. Yeah. And the cycle, I agree with that. The cycle continues because then you go, well, I'm going to need a quick hit of energy here. So you 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 invariably go for the ultra processed junk food, high in sugar, uh, and and you keep that process going, and then you move less. Um, so the normal stress that would have got rid of some of that glucose, and then the other stimulus that helps mitochondrial health disappears as well. So it's just one on another on another. Uh, and everywhere you look, I think you're right, Pete. Everywhere you look in the body. Um, a system that is normally 
throughout the entire time Kim has been on the planet until just recently been in perfect balance, uh, is tipped almost 100% in this one direction. And when you, I mean, the astonishing thing to me is when you, and I, I imagine to you as you two as well, is when you try and contradict that and say, hey, this might be going on, you know, usually just met with a sort of blank, blank glaze at the best and uh, mostly like, no, you're wrong, uh, especially in medicine. Mm. Definitely. And then just leading on from that, Grant, um, I recently had a client that was um, all systems go, um, 80-year-old client mm. wanting to get off sugar. So wanting to get off the cakes and the biscuits and everything. And she really wanted to see her energy levels um, increase. But when she went to the cardiologist, the cardiologist really scared her away from, you know, eating the liver pate eggs. and the eggs, um, the saturated fats. So she had an absolute um, freak out <laughs> at eating saturated fats um, just because the cardiologist had said, no, your cholesterol um, is going to go too high. What yeah, it's a you... myopic my focus. Yeah. And look, my dad... Uh, who unfortunately ended up developing metastatic prostate cancer, uh, which is well and truly sorted now. I mean, I, sort of my one frustration is that you get everyone in your family eating well, except for your dad who doesn't believe a word you say, until he gets metastatic prostate cancer and then decides to ask you what you do for a job again. The, uh, <laughs> I think that's every family, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's really interesting because I went along to the first couple of oncology appointments. She's like, oh, just eat, eat whatever you want. And, and, blah, blah, and I was like, no, that's not going to be happening. And then, and then, so we got him through his chemo things on a, on a keto diet with some intermittent fasting. He's doing really well, no side effects. But you go to the clinic where they're administering the chemotherapies, and and there's nurses, like trained nurses, walking in there with biscuits and cakes and orange juice. And you're like, no thanks, we won't be having that. Um, mm. And they're like, why not? And so, of course, I'm dumb enough to explain why. <laughs> and 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 she goes, well, uh, she goes, we don't believe in that. And I was like, well, I don't care what you believe. This isn't a church. Um, <laughs> and then I was advised that I was no longer welcome at the chemotherapy clinic. Right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that, uh, I think that speaks to exactly what you're saying, Jamie. Can, is you, that, can you give us your answer, what you gave to the nurse? Uh, well, I just, I, 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 well, this was cancer specific and, and specifically yeah. the adjunctive effects of um, ketogenic diets and fasting for chemotherapy because there's randomized trials showing this to be uh, to mm. marginalise the cancer cells and to uh, protect the rest of the body from the the poison that you're administering. Because remember, the chemotherapy is acting to destroy cells upon cell division, and so one, so cancer cells are already marginalised because they're rapidly uh, dividing. They're always anabolic; they can never get a catabolic signal. And human cells, if you eat junk food, just go into the same state because they're also constantly anabolic, rapidly dividing. But if you take them into a ketogenic state um, and augment that with some intermittent fasting, then they become catabolic. They're basically protected from the, the toxin that you are administrating by IV because they're, they're not dividing. And so this sort of where they're killed at mitosis doesn't happen to them. Uh, and so you can prevent, you know, you can minimize hair loss. The sort of you know, remember in chemo, the things that chemo gets are the things that are dividing the most rapidly, like hair cells, 
stomach cells because those are replacing every few days, uh, skin cells, and those are those are really heavily affected by chemo, and those are protected because they they go catabolic. So I'm just trying to explain it like that, um, but she doesn't believe in that. So you know that's the end of that really. Uh, it's quite a hard message to get out quickly in a yeah. healthcare setting when they have no idea who you are and you've got really no credibility. Yeah. Um, you're just, you know, uh, uh, some bozo sitting there supporting his dad. You could just uh, leave a couple of your books beside your dad's bed. And, well, <laughs> yeah, but it's just I mean, what you spoke to there, Jamie, and what I was speaking to is, is endemic in my frustration in the health system uh, that, that, uh, we're we're decades behind the science, and and you know to a certain extent it's always been the way. We expect there to be a sort of medical half life. You know half of what medicine knows is wrong, uh, and that takes forty years to replace that half. Uh, but in my mind, that was in a world that was slow moving, where you had to have the library card for the med school library, and you know, there was only limited access to knowledge. That world is a completely different world now. You can have people on Twitter or, or other social media and, and lay experts who have really educated themselves digging up the latest stuff um, and making informed decisions and, and adding to the scientific uh, debate. And that's nothing but good. Mm. And, and somehow medicine hasn't realized that. And so you end up in a bizarre situation where in the realm of nutrition, uh, if you if you're prepared to do a few months of reasonable digging around on your own, you will know ten times more than your doctor because they just never had any training. Uh, but the the power sort of sits the other way around, and that's a shame. Mm. So I want to mention one of your books, "What the Fast," because you've just mentioned a bit of fasting for chemo. Yeah. But um, can you take us through the basic elements of autophagy? And what yeah. it is, and why why intermittent fasting is good, and then perhaps who shouldn't approach uh, intermittent fasting if there is people you recommend not to. Yeah, oh, that's a really good question, Pete. So, I mean, this autophagy is just the basic cellular mechanism of what I talked about earlier of, of catabolism of of not dividing, but at the cellular level, more interesting things happen there, and I, I think probably everyone who's an adult at some point in their high school career did the cell diagram. You know, you did the cell wall, nucleus, and nucleus is the DNA, and then there's mitochondria that you talked about for, you know, producing ATP and energy production. You know, most people do that. They might not remember it all. But uh, there was always quite a large cellular organelle called the lysosome. And I remember learning that in year 10 or something, and, and there was really no description of what that did. And... As it turns out, that's because it wasn't discovered at that. Well, yeah, uh, what well, must be thirty-five years ago that I did that. Um, but it was recently that uh, this is the cellular organelle that, under either starvation, fasting conditions, or conditions of very low insulin and glucose, ketogenic eating, is activated to act within the cell to go through the cytoplasm inside the cell and tidy up any bits and pieces of floating around, but uh, also uh, take uh, mitochondria and recycle old ones and then and then uh, stimulate the the genesis of new more uh, functional mitochondria uh, with better density and better function and 
when it's done there, it can go to the cell wall and start to act extracellular in the cytoplasm as well. So it's really a stimulated by nutrient stress to go out there and, and uh, tidy things up. And that's autophagy. Uh, and it's just a basic mechanism of, uh, of all mammalian, actually probably of all animal structure and function that needs to be activated every now and again. And that's the problem for modern humans. So the question is, can you uh, mimic that in the modern world and, and do some fasting? Now, to most people, the idea of, of just closing their mouth and not eating anything is uh, quite mind-boggling. And, and uh, do they do this in Australia? I can't remember, but that's a, a New Zealand thing as well, this 40-hour famine. Yes, they so do yeah, that. Yeah, that's yeah. right. But you go, oh, I did the 40-hour famine. And it turns <laughs> out, well, actually, you're allowed to eat... Um, you're allowed barley to eat sugar. Barley sugars, which yeah. are basically glucose, yeah. the whole time. So, <laughs> so for the entire time you're fasting, you're on a sugar high. Uh, <laughs> so the real 40-hour famine is actually you just don't eat anything and just have some water uh, over that time. And then you'll see your insulin and glucose drop. And uh, when insulin and glucose are low enough, then then this process of autophagy will begin. And then the question is, uh, as most religions have, can you do like a you know, two, three, four, five-day fast? Uh, and does that provide any benefit? Uh, and there seems to be some evidence for some, some benefit. Uh, although, Pete, I think you asked the question, who shouldn't do it? And I think there, there is a question about losing uh, valuable muscle mass over that extended fast and whether you actually might be better off just doing um, shorter fasts so there's, there's there's strangely quite a lot of trial literature on doing alternate day fasting which seems to be frightfully hard for me like you don't eat every second day doesn't ruin your muscle mass but you do well out of it uh, or or you switch to something that's much easier like uh, a combination of keto eating and uh and and intermittent fasting or just time restricted feeding during the day so i the, the method that suited me best i just wrote it up in that what the fast was uh, i would do these these mondays and tuesdays because i'm usually busy at work doing things and uh running around doing whatever i do so i would just not eat breakfast not eat lunch and have one uh ketogenic type meal at dinner and then i do the same thing on tuesday and i'd find myself in pretty deep nutritional ketosis is stimulating that autophagy and purely and simply from my behavioral perspective just because i'd actually ended up putting some method on monday and tuesday i generally carried on with that ketogenic pattern but with more frequent meals over the wednesday thursday and most of friday and then sometimes i'd just be doing harder sessions or i'd just lose control socially you know i might end up with a couple of beers and you know anything could happen on saturday and then I'd go, I shouldn't have done that. And I would have a good low carb Sunday and then be back into the cycle again. So that was a sort of natural cycle that I would find myself behaviorally falling into to stimulate nutritional ketosis and the benefits of that and autophagy, but also um, not being completely ridiculous, cut off in my own little nutritional bubble where I have to live with a 19 year old, an 18 year old, an 11 year old, and um, my wife um, and a dog and sort of socialize and be with families and operate in a pathological food environment that i can't have a hundred percent of the control of it so that's what what the fast was about was just sort of try and work with that cycling of catabolic and anabolic but also in the context of 
um, something that I could handle. So I just wrote it up and thought, well, maybe other people might benefit from that as well. And would you eat a lot more or your dinner size would end up being about the same as normal? Did you? Find uh, it's just about the same as normal, yeah. 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 And, I mean, it's only a certain amount you can eat and I eat a reasonable volume anyway. And um, when you mentioned there's other ways of, of doing that, just a very low, low carbohydrate um, eating, but what about um, like protein sparing fast where you really just have protein um, yeah. and not too much of it. At a, and so you, could you do similar um, to what you're suggesting? Yeah, like, uh, yeah I think the, probably the problem with protein is that um, no matter what, it's the way protein is dealt with is slightly insulogenic. So it's probably going to dial a little bit of that autophagy off up and down, but it's certainly another way of doing it. I mean, you look at people who do a carnivore type diet, which is really high in protein and they're, they're ketogenic the whole time. So yeah, uh, yeah that's, that's another way of, of attacking it. And is there anyone, um, Grant, that you recommend shouldn't do oh, yeah, that was, fasting we, in terms of intermittent fasting? So wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't eat breakfast. They wouldn't eat until ten or eleven in the morning. Uh, yeah, I think I think there's a few types. I mean, obviously, pregnancy is always sort of contraindicated for everything. But who really knows? Since no research is ever done on those women, it's just so hard to do. But so you, mm-hmm. I think everyone sort of is on the cautious side there, and I probably fall into that category still. Um, I still think there's an issue that's unresolved around around menstrual cycles uh, and then also uh, changes in hormonal balance through hormonal balance through perimenopause and menopause. Uh, and and some women just seem to be better off because it is stressful. Like mm. like there's a stress to fasting, and if you've got quite a lot going on, there's also a, a group of there's a subgroup in that those categories that that for whatever reason, train hard a lot. So they've got a sort of high cortisol load, mm. and a high stress. And I, I think, well, first of all, I wouldn't advise them doing that. But if they are doing that, I don't think fasting, intermittent fasting works very well for that. It's just an extra, you're already stressed. You're already producing far too much cortisol. You're suffering negative consequences. Um, uh, fasting will produce more cortisol. Like that's one of the side effects by itself and if you've got that managed that's not a negative thing that's a good thing but if it's already out of control i think that's an issue and i that it's just hard to know what's going on with that especially perimenopausal just what by that i mean a woman who is now her estrogen and uh, uh, levels and progesterone levels are not as they have been they're not cycling as they have been the balance isn't what it has been um, who knows exactly what that balance is, but that appears to, I think that warrants further investigation. I, my experience with those women is that you're probably better off with some more regular meal timing. Mm. You got anything else to add on that? Um, well, I yeah, was, I, I wanted to ask something. Circadian. I was going to add in the, the circadian rhythm and cortisol kind of picture into that maybe eating framework and whether it's just partly they're not, having good sleep they're they're too much blue light at night so so does circadian circadian rhythm you think affect fasting impacts yeah it's a sort of a two-way thing here which is um like if you read the academic literature on trials with 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 fasting like whether it be alternate day fasting or uh, longer fasts or uh eating windows then it, it appears to be better for sleep quality and quantity um except for my experience personally with me um, is that's not the case, uh, especially on an extended fast. My sleep gets 
lighter and lighter and lighter and of lower and lower quality. I don't seem that tired from it, but that's certainly happening. And I've always explained this to myself without any actual science behind this, that, uh, that I'm getting really, if any food actually did come wandering past when I was asleep, I'd be sweet as to jump up and kill it. Uh, I don't know if there's anything in that, but that's, I find that anything beyond a day's fasting has quite a negative impact on my sleep. And most often the reason I'll break an extended fast is it's just too annoying. Uh, but other people don't report that. And the literature doesn't report that. Yeah. My theory that I just thought of then, um, perhaps having lower liver glycogen yeah. could mean that your hormones are actually kind of working a little bit harder to make up for that lower liver glycogen. Yeah, but perhaps that's the case, and it's just really having to work harder to to mm. produce more gluconeogenesis and stuff just to maintain my mm. normal blood glucose and that mm. sort of thing. Um, and yeah, so then the cortisol was really rocketing harder and higher, yeah. and maybe yeah, affecting sleep. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Just going back um, to women, because <laughs> I'm obviously that's a passion of mine, women's health. Yeah. Um, uh, two part question. So women that are sort of rushing around, you know, they're working hard, they're training hard, they're trying to have a social life as well. Um, uh, how would you suggest um, adapting a low carb lifestyle um, suits them? Is it different, you know, if they're doing slightly higher intensity training or how, how would you recommend that? Yeah, it's well, yeah, an interesting one. And it's, it's a really hard one for me to have credibility and insight. So as soon as you start talking about menstrual cycles and, ovulation and stuff you know first of all it becomes slightly awkward but actually it's just like me talking about in many ways it's like me talking about um you know how bats use radar to navigate the world it's something i've got virtually no insight into okay. so, I'll, so i'll preface that for a start okay uh, awesome. uh, so so that so that that said and, and that, that's important to me because all of my research really is predicated on the fact that i would have always have done it to the next level myself Mm. Um, and hopefully convince some other people I know to have a go. So I have some, I have quite good insight on that. And I think that's, I do believe that's important. Mm. Um, and saying that, I think what's going to emerge, although um, my friend, Dr. Mickey Willard disagrees with me, I, I think there's going to be something in, in, uh, in diet prescription that match, matches a phase of menstrual cycle. Uh, and I don't, I, I, I think my progesterone is higher metabolic rate is higher there is more of a craving for carbohydrate uh my hypothesis is that that supplementing with more carbohydrate in that phase and doing less fasting when progesterone is higher um would be beneficial now I, i'm not aware of any data on that uh and you know of course every time we go to do a study we're just like who are we going to use as subjects and we're like oh we should definitely have men and women and we go oh no menstrual cycle is going to bug it up the woman around <laughs> um you know which is the very reason we should be doing it on women mm. um so so your typical exercise physiology particularly subject uh is is a male mm. for for exactly the reason that you're talking about and we don't do work on women and so it's just been an, it's, it's such a you know to neglect half the population uh, and your physiology of metabolism is bizarre. And then when you're talking about when progesterone is higher, uh, yeah. with your hypothesis um, is that that you know the few days before um, period actually comes. Yes, correct, yeah. correct. Well, it's actually the whole 
second half of that cycle, but it, it, it gets higher and higher, right? So just as you're coming towards ovulation, it's at its highest. Uh, and, and there's also, like, you're going to have way more insight than this, so you should really do this bit of the talking, frankly, Jamie. But, um, you know, there's also sort of behavioral things that's going, a woman who, especially with her exercise, you know, during that part of the cycle, it's like, yeah, actually I actually don't feel like doing this today, so I'm not going to do it. Uh, there's one diet study where they randomized women to, to a, 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 a strict control of what they're eating uh, the whole time, or they actually said, uh, you know what, it's going to be two weeks and two weeks, and uh, and as you're coming up to ovulation and it shows high, just just uh, be a bit more forgiving of yourself. And they did just as well mm. uh, with with half the angst. So there's 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 something. Mm. Awesome. Um, I want to mention Precure, which is a business that you and your wife have, um, and part of that is helping people to get off the sugar diets into a lower carb diet. Um, so prevention is cure is your, is your tag. And that's yeah. where the name comes from. Yeah. Um, so pre-diabetic people, obviously a, a bit of a target for you. Yeah. Um, so you've worked a lot with people who have what you would say metabolic dysfunction where, mm. you know, we're not producing energy in that balanced way of fat and sugars. And there's probably been a lot of insulin resistance for quite a while. So my question is, you've worked with a lot of these people. Um, have you seen sort of ongoing liver sensitivities to fructose and alcohol often in people that have come from that, that background and those, those health issues? Oh, yeah, and that's totally plausible. It's just hard to know how to study that. So I guess mm. looking, just looking at liver function tests and how they respond, and they do respond worse to alcohol and fructose. So I guess that probably answers the question. Yeah, um, well, tell us okay. more about fructose as well then and why it's when it's okay to have it or when it people should be avoiding fruit which is the you know fructose is in fruit yeah well so fructose and actually um this exact same explanation applies to ethanol which is the you know, active thing when we think about alcohol um, because they basically go into the liver and act in the exact same pathway so as uh my colleague dr robert lustig would say it's uh sugar is alcohol without the buzz <laughs> so because and, and so you end up with alcoholic fatty liver disease and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease are the same exact same pathology just caused by a slightly different molecule that has an identical effect on the body so uh yeah w one thing about fructose which which doesn't really exist in nature in any large quantity um but but is part of the sugar and fruits but it's tied up in fiber and it's released slowly and uh, goes and ends up going in a different part of the uh, of the small intestine really because uh, because it goes further down, there's another whole thing there. Uh, but the thing, the thing with those is that they, at one point, you think that's good. Well, they don't raise insulin; they're not recognised as glucose in the blood, and that would be a good thing. You know, we could feed these to diabetics, and that wouldn't, their blood sugar wouldn't go up. That'd be awesome. Um, unfortunately, they just go straight to the liver. Um, are pretty much turned into uh, uh, fat and stored in the liver. And then there's another whole pathway where they're phosphorylized and that produces uric acid. And part of uric acid's problem is that that is the root cause of, of gout. These uric acid crystals sort of tend to go with gravity and accumulate in the hips, knees, fingers and, and toes. And, and that's gout. Uh, and then you've got uh, another pathway with nitric oxide 
uh, the cellular level sort of pushing to cause insulin resistance as well. So the trouble is that this fructose, which is half of table sugar, so it's sucrose, when you think of the white table sugar, whatever's in Coca-Cola, that sort of thing, half of that, half of that sugar is glucose and half of sucrose is fructose. So it's now in this sort of massive supply in the body, right? So it's just turning up in biologically unplausible quantities. And because there's no fiber in it, it gets absorbed at the upper small intestine. And, and that promotes another whole uh, cascade of hormones uh, called the incretin effect. So it pushes, uh, it pushes the hormones of insulin and glucagon to be dysregulated as well. So, so all of a sudden, um, you also when you're eating this fructose, you're also telling your liver to produce more glucose and dump it into the blood hand over fist when it's not supposed to be doing that. So you've got, you've got all these effects all over the place from fructose and alcohol. Uh, and then, then the, the liver itself becomes insulin resistant and it doesn't operate in its normal way to get energy into the cells and becomes dysfunctional and you get sclerosis of the liver and dysfunction and that. And then, and then you become, that's part of the contributing to type two diabetes. And then there's a sort of whole circle that continues around that because um, now you're more insulin resistant, you've got more craving, you'll eat more of the stuff and, Blah blah blah. I think I'm going on a bit now, actually. So no, I'll, no, I'll stop. That's great. <laughs> just just for people, just to rehash, um, how would you define insulin resistance, and how do you know if you have it, Grant? For people out there. Well, that's a that's a um, that's a million dollar question. So <laughs> so it's not so much. Um, so so there's two words here which are, sounds there's two phrases here which sound similar but are actually sort of different. We, we I'm using the term insulin resistance, which when I really mean. Um, they're prone to becoming hyperinsulinemic when they eat carbohydrates. Um, so, so they're prone to producing massive amounts of insulin to achieve the same job as a, in, a, in a healthy person, a small amount of insulin would, would do. Uh, and so this, this term hyperinsulinemia is what we really mean. So the way you'd measure that is what you'd have to do is you'd have to feed someone a, a, a carbohydrate meal or a standard oral glucose load and measure their not just their glucose response, but their blood insulin response. And and so in nutrition, we're calling that a postprandial response. So that's just your response in your blood to eating that stuff. And uh, obviously, that's hard to do. Like mm. you just don't go into the doctor and they do that. But it can be ordered actually. Uh, and and Australian doctors more so than New Zealand doctors can actually tick that form and get you to do that. So that's that's the most accurate way of telling whether you're hypersecreting insulin. Uh, when you're not supposed to be, uh, most people don't end up doing that, and so the standard blood tests that you get, the two parameters are actually lipid parameters, fat parameters in your blood, actually um, strangely reflect um, the, this this pattern of insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia, and so um, one is triglycerides, uh, and it's a really interesting fact is that if you eat a low-fat, high-carbohydrate meal or you eat a low-carbohydrate, high-fat meal, you'd expect to produce more of these fats, triglycerides, when you ate the fatty meal. You actually produce more when you eat the high-carbohydrate meal. So they're really responsible. They get fluxed into the liver and out. So, so if you've got high-fasting triglycerides and low HDL cholesterol, then you're highly likely to be insulin-resistant and also suffering from this condition called hyperinsulinemia. Um, and the hypothesis here, and no one really knows because no one's done the population studies, but the hypothesis here is that, that 
in somewhere like Australia and New Zealand, around half of the population probably suffer from this condition called hyperinsulinemia, which is really what precedes diabetes and pre-diabetes. Uh, you, you, you can control your blood sugar, but you do so by producing huge quantities of insulin. And because insulin turns off your ability to burn fat, uh, it's all that stuff we talked about earlier in this uh, this uh, podcast, which is uh, being anabolic, then then that is the condition to be avoided. Mm. And then do you sort of find that that also um, changes people's sleep patterns too? So people will wake up certain times in the night. Yeah, there's evidence for that. There's, there's, there's yeah. definitely evidence for that. So there's, there's both... Uh, it's plausible that they could over secrete insulin and they could drop their blood sugar or actually just high insulin seems to be associated with poor sleep quality. Who knows why um, you're inflamed? Who knows what else is going on? So yeah, probably, uh, which of course um, then exacerbates the problem because a poor night's sleep makes you more insulin resistant in the, in the next instance. So mm. this exact same meal when you've had a poor night's sleep has a different effect metabolically than when you had a good night's sleep. So the process continues. Yeah. Yeah. Um, awesome. Another question about the liver, and am I correct? You've done a bit of DEXA scan work in the past with athletes or regular people. Oh, I haven't done so much DEXA scanning, but there's guys in my research center that've done quite a lot of DEXA scanning, and, and yeah. quite a few of my colleagues. Um, I'll tell you the study with DEXA scanning. Well, actually, you don't need to DEXA scan to get fatty liver. Uh, you can just get yeah, it with ultrasound. Just explain that in basic level, basic terms for people. What's a DEXA scan? Oh, so so DEXA scan is a um, dual X-ray anthropometry. So you basically get this sort of uh, dual X-ray thing. You're lying on a table, and it, it, you can you can see all sorts of things. You can see uh, lean mass. So you can see everyone. You can see, end up with a sort of picture of a skeleton, but then you've got the pictures of all the muscles around that, and then you've got pictures of where all the fat is deposited around the body, including you know, uh, uh, cutaneous adipositas around the skin, and then uh, fat around the liver and uh, all the visceral organs, which you tend to see. So it's quite a, you can just Google it up. It's, it's some, some interesting pictures. And you can go and get this done for a couple hundred bucks in, in most uh, developed countries. It's an interesting thing to do. Mm. Um, but, but one of the things is sort of identifying this fatty liver. Uh, but one thing that struck me, um, and this is nothing to do with my research, uh, this must be more than a decade ago when my wife was pregnant with their last um, little boy, Danny, we just went in for a, a, a scan, you know, these, these pregnancy scans just to see that the baby's doing all right. Uh, and I got talking to this family. He goes, oh, yeah, I just finished my master's because I use the same ultrasound thing to scan uh, for fatty liver. I was like, oh, is that right? And he's like, yeah, I just, um, I just scanned some, you know, a couple of hundred New Zealand uh, 12-year-old boys. I was like, oh, is that right? He goes, yeah, yeah, half of them had fatty liver. Oh, like half, half, half of them. Uh, and so obesity is a predictor of that, but not necessarily, right? They've got a high sugar diet. Mm. Uh, and so this is sort of this undiagnosed thing. Uh, and, and you can even see fatty liver in athletes, as you mm. say, Pete. It's just astonishing. Like you've got these people who are training you know, 10 hours a week these or, or more, still got fatty liver. Yeah, yeah. That and would, yeah. the hormonal impact of having a fatty liver is is far and wide, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think most people are sort of starting to get the picture that that everything affects everything else. So when you get yeah. dysfunction somewhere, it affects dysfunction somewhere else, and it probably feeds back and makes it worse uh, in the long run. And the liver is such a central organ to the body because it, it, you know, when you go into Wikipedia and go liver, 
and you go, well, what does the liver do? It's like, oh, yeah, it's do, producing bile salts that go out. And it's an exocrine organ. It, it produces uh, 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 bile that goes out in a, in, into the, um, emulsifies fat in, in the gut. It's producing uh, and exporting cholesterol and, and through lipoproteins. It's, it's, it's controlling and managing and storing blood glucose. I mean, too, it's just, this is like this. You know, central control station. It's an astonishing organ. It's unbelievable that uh, this will be the last organ you wanted to mistreat. Mm. And and what would be the um, the blood test that you could easily ask your GP for to find out the extent of your liver health, like fatty liver? Oh well, the, the, yeah. There's just there's there's just there's there's just the liver function proteins, which basically uh, are a measure of damage to those. Uh, proteins and they're pretty easy to the, you probably need your doctor to interpret those it's probably too long to go through now but it's um you want those in the normal range and yeah. and they should be in the normal range if they're not in the normal range that's that's just like a uh, red flag hello mm. you know you can look at other numbers and you go oh well this might mean that is it you know mm. high or is it low but liver function tests if it's high so your liver's not doing well responds Within weeks to uh, to sorting your diet and exercise out and stress, uh, so is that, I guess that's the good news about liver function. Uh, beyond the sort of cirrhosis that's long term, uh, recovering good liver function is is quick. Mm. And have you got um, any any key tips or, or research sort of around the kidneys? Because a lot of people look at. Um, the kidney function when they're particularly when they are kind of low carb, they're increasing their protein and they start to worry about the, the uric acid levels and numbers. Um, or it could be the other way where they're a very high sugar diet. So the kidney is not working well because of the insulin load. Yeah. Um, and so they may be seeing sort of numbers reflecting a poor functioning kidney so therefore they stay away from protein and that kind of makes the system worse or yeah yeah that's a hard it's like, i'll just preface this by saying i'm no expert on on nephrology and kidneys but i'll tell you what i do know and i think it's pretty much what you know is that that i don't regard protein in the diet as a particular problem for kidneys unless you've actually already got kidney disease uh and most people haven't got kidney disease mm. Um, the second thing that you need to know about kidneys is they're prone to damage by high blood glucose. And, and it's purely and simply is that we talked about that pro process of glycation. Um, glycation is the attaching of glucose to proteins, you know, structures around the body. Um, now, if it attaches itself to a red blood cell, then that'll get killed off in six weeks. And that's the end of that anyway. And it's floating around. It's not doing too much. Uh, but when you've got really narrow, fine capillaries, uh, and, and those are specifically in things like the eye, uh, especially the retina, you think about the sort of complexity of the blood supply to support individual rod and cone cells, um, the kidney, uh, uh, the fine nerves in the fingers, uh, the penis in men, those are response, those are much more prone to be the first thing that show up as damage from high blood sugar, but simply because of the, the granularity of the capillary bed. And so a small amount of damage, glycation, in one of those fine capillary networks renders it useless. So it's not the blood's just not going through anymore. Oh, the brain's the other one, of course. 
Uh, and so those organs are just prone to it. So the kidney um, is obviously crucial for life because it's, it's cleaning stuff out of the blood and, and putting it into the urine. And glucose is, and so kidney disease is one of the first things to really go with uh, prolonged high blood pressure. And that's why uh, you know, kidney transplants and renal dialysis and stuff is, is really the major consequence of type 2 diabetes. Uh, and I just want to get a plug in here for this because it, this is the one thing that annoys me. Um, in New Zealand, it'll be the same in Australia. One year on renal dialysis is $100,000 just for that care. And I go to someone and say, can we have $100 for a diet program? And they tell me there's no money. Uh, that would be my, you know, that's, that's my daily existence when that happens. And it just, see, that something's wrong. I just that wasn't yeah. a question, but yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a frustration, yeah, <laughs> a warranted one. Yeah. Um, so just going on to something a little bit different now is uh, what do you see as the main adapt adaptation period for people moving from a typical high carb diet to a lower carb whole food diet? Oh, what's the question, um, Jamie? Sorry, about... um, ha, uh, what period of time do you see in most clients um, the ad adaptation period? Oh, yeah. So, so, so we actually studied that. So um, me and, uh, and Cliff Harvey, who's now graduated with his PhD, who's just a real smart guy, did his PhD with me studying exactly that. So I've, we were interested in that sort of keto flu thing. Is there such a thing? Mm. You know, if, you, if you're dependent on carbs and you're not very good at burning fat, then, then reorchestrating the system to be able to be better at burning fat and, and produce ketones and that sort of thing. Some people go through a bit of uh, malaise, I guess is what you're talking about during that time and don't uh, feel so good. Now, uh, when we actually did this in a randomized trial, I think the median time for onset of that was three days. Uh, and the median time of feeling bad was like two days. But a uh, range between no days and I don't know, 14 days. Mm -hmm. But so yeah, there's a couple of people who, who, who just had this feeling of unwellness, um, lightheadedness and lack of energy and lethargy and just not going well for, for a reasonably long time. But actually for most people, it's a couple of days and sets in after a few days. Uh, and so the reason for that is just the idea that you've depleted yourself of muscle and liver glycogen. Um, you haven't got enough glucose to run the brain exclusively on glucose. You're going to have to supplement it with with products from fatty acid oxidation, ketones. Um, if you're not very good at producing those because you never really had to physiologically, um, there might be a little bit of a gap in supplying enough energy for the brain. Uh, additionally, you end up because, as I talked about earlier, in the kidney, uh, insulin and glucose drop rapidly. You end up dumping a lot of sodium. Uh, you lose a bit of blood volume. Uh, you can end up getting low blood pressure. And so, you know, you're feeling weak and you get up, you feel dizzy. Uh, those are all issues during that period. But yeah, I think the sort of keto flu, I, I, it's hard for me to recall this, but you know, I remember when I first went on a keto diet, the one thing I recall um, is sitting in my office writing an academic paper and I couldn't remember how to spell went. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I couldn't even Google it. I couldn't even think of how to... <laughs> Happened to you guys? <laughs> yeah, sometimes Pete asks me those questions. How do I spell this word? <laughs> well, I wasn't having keto flu, but I went to spell the word 12th. And... Well, that's a little bit more complicated to <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, 
Can you believe there's a L and F, a T and an H all at the back end of it? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, that's yeah. That's I I, I I sympathize with that under normal conditions. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you find though, Grant, that there's like things like electrolytes can help? Um, yeah, I, I'd be supplementing with with with, with um, sodium. We tried uh, we tried we, we did a randomized trial where we we supplemented with uh, medium chain triglycerides versus. Uh, uh, mainly the control condition was people taking sunflower oil. Oh my god! Um, <laughs> uh, and it, I think it improved the. It did improve the time to adaptation by I don't know half a day or just a little bit more. So it wasn't much, but it, you know, so it did a little. Taking um, exogenous ketones would it would help them feel better, but it may stop the adaptation. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So uh, I think we've talked about this before, eh? So the the can you can you power down like some of those uh, ketone esters, bang your ketones up, and then do those there? But then do you blunt the body's body's necessity to adapt because it doesn't have to satisfy that uh, fuel storage? I don't really know the answer to that. Uh, <laughs> we would have used those like those HMV ketones for that trial if there had been such a thing when we did it, but it didn't exist then. Well, the keto but, salts as well, another option. Yeah, yeah, they're right. They they're sort of disgusting. I mean, they don't do much for you. Oh, they're that... flavoured these days. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just looking over at my um, office shelf. Actually, I've got a whole bunch of those uh, ketone monoesters, which bang your ketones up to five in about ten minutes, and it lasts for you know several hours. Wow. Those are those are really powerful. <laughs> uh, and then I've got a bunch of ketone salts here. Uh, they'll bang your beta hydroxybutyrate up to like one point two or something, and it'll last for an hour. So yeah, I guess it could help, but it's, they're, they're not very effective. The ketone salts, uh, I guess you're hydration getting hydration as well. I guess yeah, and you're getting a lot of um, you're getting like massive amounts of of sodium and potassium depending on how they're made. Um, yeah. it's, it's hard to know what if that's good or bad under those conditions. Okay, um, but do you find that though? However, um, making sure people are taking enough sodium and electrolyte and magnesium in the adaptation phase is important. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to ask a couple of sports questions a little bit now, performance questions. Um, do you think the depletion of muscle glycogen and liver glycogen is something that is happening often or because my theory is that most people are going to either experience more oxidative stress that will slow them down yeah. Or just low blood sugar if they're not fat adapted before yeah. they'll be able to actually deplete glycogen stores enough to for that to be a factor. Yeah, I'm not quite sure exactly what you're asking. Well, yeah. Do you think can somebody deplete liver and muscle glycogen? Is is it happening regularly? Is that is it happening? In oh, I think I think you need a level of of either fitness to be able to do that. Mm. Um, which most people don't have because it's yeah. requires quite a long time of endurance exercising, uh, mm. or um, you need a, a an ability to fast for a re reasonably long period of time. Actually, if you're not active, um, which I think most people who aren't fat adaptive just wouldn't get to, they'd just get too angry about it and not do it. So I think for most people, it's just not a thing. Yeah, that's what uh, I thought. And their yeah. their blood sugar would actually drop. Before their liver and glycogen would drop. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I would say so. They just because they've got 
they they run into a sort of fuel emergency mm. um, that they have no way of coping with, and you're not going to let yourself get into that state without alternative fuel sources very easily. Like we're pretty motivated to keep enough fuel to run the human, uh, and, and I think you're right. If you're not fat adapted, that's you're not in a very good situation. I mean, I, I don't even think fat adapted is a very good word anymore. I think it's just a metabolically normal human is what we should be calling that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> people don't know what you're talking about, of course, but that's 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 actually what we're talking about, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 We, we sort of think we're special, we're fat adapted, and everything, guys. But in fact, we're just like how humans have been the entire time they've been on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> um- <laughs> And you've done a fair bit of uh, respiratory and quotient testing, um, yeah. you know, with some of your athletes and other people yeah. you've worked with. Yeah. Um, I want to get across to people that, um, that, and your thoughts on the math, maximum yeah. aerobic function, math, yeah. math training, um, yeah. at your aerobic heart rate yeah. can actually go higher when you become fat adapted because your ability to use fat for energy, therefore you can demand more energy from fat yeah. means you'll still be burning fat at a higher heart rate. Is that Absol- right? absolutely correct? And and that's sort of the the tip of the unknown iceberg for most people. But you did right. That's did right. Um, I just want to preface it with the math stuff, Peter. I know we've talked about this before. Um, I mean, I feel so stupid. Uh, I asked at a pro briefing in 1995 what had actually happened. I was living in uh, Rockhampton at the time, and about six weeks before the race. I was out with a local cycling club, which is pretty strong up there, and we were lapping it out with the, you know, actually a motorcyclist motor pacing us. We're going pretty fast, and then out of the middle of this road between Rockhampton and Yapoon, this um, dog ran out into the middle of the bunch, and and I t-boned the dog and snapped my forks clean off, um, broke my collarbone in two places. But but I paid the money, right? And like it was a pro entry to Hawaii, and and so I sort of got to the race start and not great shape, but the Collarbone had healed. You know, I was sitting at this pro briefing next to Mark Allen, you know, the seven-time champion. And I was like, oh, I'm just, I've got nothing to lose. Here. I'm not, I'm not a competitor in this race. I'm probably going to come last in the pros. I can can't even swim with two arms. Um, <laughs> so I just like, you know, I was asking what his training is and what he is. And and surprisingly, in that situation, he took time to talk to me and tell me all about it. He's like, oh, I've got this coach Phil Maffetone, and it's all about fat burning. There's a low aerobic threshold heart rate, but that on its own is not going to be good enough. You need to supplement with a lot more high fat in the diet and restrict your carbohydrates, blah, blah, blah. Mate. Basically, it tells the secret of life. <laughs> and I just walk away going, oh, that was just a waste of time. What a load of bullshit. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so I didn't get it. And then, and then you know, when I eventually discovered low carb and then obviously the interaction with, with uh, max aerobic function training and then I sort of got friends with Phil Mappetone on Facebook and then I messaged Phil one day and I was like, oh, this is, I, you know, I found about this, about you've been doing this in the 90s. He's like, mate, I was thinking in the 70s. Mm. Um, and so, so it's bizarre in endurance sport that this type of training, this, uh, you know, I, this training where you put your ego in a brown paper bag and leave it at home and go out and, and train fat burning um, has this astonishing progressive and increasing for a long time improvement. Well, you know more about this than me, and you've executed it certainly way better than I ever have. Um, is is still apparently a secret. And I go to an Ironman or or seventy point three, and I especially Ironman, and watch ninety five percent of the field blow 
lose all their liver glycogen and stumble home with no fat adaptation. And not only that, half the field's still overweight or obese, the same as the general population, despite training for hours. I mean, it must drive you guys crazy. You're closer to that world than me. I listened to a podcast you were on the other day, um, or maybe it was months ago, um, but I just listened to it, how you gave the story if you weren't allowed to give your talk that you'd been giving for years at an Ironman event in New Zealand because of the, the major sponsor being Kellogg's. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, I'm wearing that as a badge of courage, Pete. Yeah, um, it was a great story. So, so yeah, um, me and Dan Plews turned up and just did a talk about being fat adapted. And I was just doing some community work anyway. And I was just doing it for free. It's no big deal. I've got some athletes coming along, blah, blah, blah. And oh, I just couldn't help myself. At one point, I was like, of course, if you get the sponsor's product, that isn't going to help you. And <laughs> then yeah, I was, I've been banned from Ironman New Zealand now for that sort of stuff. So I, I think it's just a badge of courage. It has to be done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, Nutri-Grade, what the hell are we talking about? Can, can I ask you, Grant, for people out there, um, do you feel like for more high-intensity um, like sports that people do need to have a slightly higher carb intake or do you still feel like a lower carb intake is fine? Uh, I, I'm sort of happy with a lower carb base for most sports in the sense that I'm not aware of any sports except for sumo wrestling where being lean is not an advantage. Mm. Uh, so, so that's going to help with that. Uh, I'm also think that when they've studied high performance sport across all sorts of things, from uh, forget about like hundred meter sprinting or something, because that's another whole thing. Mm. Um, but, but for sports where there's actually some physical movement over some period of time, uh, whether it be team sports like an AFL or something, or or triathlon or cycling or even middle distance running. Uh, or hockey or anything, uh, then they'll train up to 20 hours a week. Uh, the bulk of that work will be aerobic work. Um, that's supported best by a low carbohydrate diet. Now they'll supplement that with, with glucose for some sessions. And I get it. I don't, think you necessarily need to do it but i think it it possibly helps and i think especially in team sports situations it's useful um so i think that's my general view i know nothing once you get into something like uh like like powerlifting or sprinting that that have uh very very short performance components um i don't understand those sports Mm. and it's not a place i play and so i've got really no comment on diet for those sports mm-hmm. um, and you need to go consult someone actually knew what they're talking about but for everything else yeah uh, i'll just give you one example uh, which i think is really useful because it's a sport that you would think is actually pretty high intensity right it's rowing generally lasts about six seven minutes um, now i'm familiar with the new zealand rowing program they, they do well like they win gold medals at the olympics they punch well above their weight um, they do typically 18 sessions a week uh, and you go, well, this is a pretty high-demand sport. Well, they only ha- they, they have three sessions where there's a glycolytic demand. The other 15 are aerobic uh, and, and can be done faster or fueled with fat. And um, perhaps they do take some extra carbohydrate for those sessions, and I think that's a good thing. But, but you know, they, and these guys, are, these aren't like sort of layabout sports science type triathletes who you know like who like to get into that sort of stuff they're just hard asses with beds and stuff and they just like to smash themselves but even them those people still would just the majority of that that what you think is a highly glycolytic sport uh, is aerobic mm-hmm. and therefore 
is, is best in, under those nutrition conditions, in my opinion. Mm. Well, it was a few years ago when I was listening to a lot about math training and listening to a lot about low carb. And it wasn't until sort of the light bulb moment where I went, oh, the reason they're being talked about together is because they go together. So there's no point trying to train all this aerobic adaptation, which is what you want, if you were at the same time having so much sugar that you're actually switching off the ability to use oxygen and fat. And so- you, Yeah, 100%, 100%. It's- um. I mean, you said a bit of the me, but straight away. Like that's a, that's a what two sentence summary that's- way better than i've ever seen it yeah i agree with that yeah so it's crazy if you saw some all these people doing aerobic training and not doing it in an in a way with a diet that assisted them to have that adaptation oh so yeah i mean you're down there fueling your aerobic session with powerade i mean what the hell it's it's, it's just a bizarre situation and the whole breakfast cell industry that's why i so against nutrigrain it's like you know you good athletes don't do that yeah uh, although strangely, and I'd be interested in both of your opinions on this, strangely, you still see some professional triathletes that eat a reasonably high carb diet um, and end up, if you put them in my lab, being quite good fat burners. Mm. Is that purely well, just the volume of training that they do? Well, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure you can answer your own question there that um, when you are exercising, you become very insulin sensitive. Though mm. so most of that carbohydrate just goes straight back into the muscles without much of the insulin spike. So maybe they're not um, hyperinsulinemic um, yeah. because of the so many hours that they are doing. Um, and most of them aren't having a thousand gels throughout their long training and they're doing 25, 30 hours of training. They're not gels all the time, um, maybe yeah. mostly in recovery and things. So they're getting that aerobic adaptation during it. Um, yeah, right. And then but you've probably seen some experience and be able to talk a little bit about the problems, however, of having that high carb diet and um, particularly around weaker bones and, and sodium. Oh yeah. Low protein. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's actually, there's even more interesting stuff in that. Now I have to just remember this properly because uh, Catherine Croft, Dr. Catherine Croft, she was a doctor student of mine, but it's a pharmacist. She's a, a academic who does quite a lot of low carb. She's the one who discovered that, that, uh, whole craft pattern stuff to do with hyperinsulinemia we we found the guy that i was talking about that before we found that protocol and got his fifteen thousand data set and uh, she was she was telling me and i just need to remember this exactly so uh, bear with me people and i may get this slightly wrong um the trouble is on a high carb diet that um that because you're not able to burn fat um then then and i just need to recall the exact difference between osteo blasts and osteoclasts uh, but in the sort of formation of new bone cells then uh, fat is getting absorbed uh, in that bone process and so now you've got a, actually a much softer uh, a weaker bone and so when we start to look at long-term bone health things like osteoporosis and stuff uh, that high carb low fat diet uh, it really drives the soft weak bone structure uh, because you're actually you're actually getting uh believe it or not fatty bones okay. and so that, that so that's that's a thing for a start so uh, but i deviated from your original question which i've now completely forgotten oh, sodium and protein oh so there's that yeah yeah so there's that there's that effect as well and 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 yeah you know, i'd also say i'm no bone health expert um 
but yeah, I think those have certainly got factors to play. Is that why you sometimes see a lot of um, athletes will get like breakages when you really think, oh, they sh- it should have just been a, a slight sprain or something, but they've actually broken a bone? Yeah, and I, I actually see a lot of um, young, uh, particularly I work with, see, they're not coming to me, but they, I reckon they should, but they don't. They, they're going to the to the physio and down to the anti-gravity running thing and everything, but they're, they're, they're typically young female triathletes uh, with lower limb stress fractures, they are uh, uh, amenorrheic. They've got the whole female athlete uh, triad thing happening there. And uh, I think it's a nutrient insufficiency. Uh, it's high insulin, high glucose, uh, poor nutrient absorption. Uh, it's never talked about as a nutrition problem. It's a, it's, a, it's a biomechanical and impact problem is the way that it's treated. And, uh, yeah, that... that that's the, my closest sort of observation of those at-risk athletes. Mm. Mm. That that happened to me. I broke my ankle and it really shouldn't have been perhaps a break, but I wasn't eating fat. I wasn't eating much protein yeah. and I was yeah. uh, typically addicted to sugar years ago. Um, yeah. Yeah, and broke my ankle when... And then it when it shouldn't have been, it, it was just a low impact. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And then I decided yeah. to eat egg whites and corn thins and knew nothing about nutrition at the time. And it took a year to heal. So. Oh, because you're throwing away the best part of the egg yeah. as well. That's a shame. <laughs> <laughs> so I was that. I was that person. <laughs> we won't won't keep you much longer. But that, that what you were saying leads me to another question about your um, thoughts on vitamins and minerals and the importance of it. And I think something you mentioned in one of the podcasts was that the, the other cofactors of producing energy. So, you know, you've got the fuel, which is the fat and the glucose, but the other cofactors, which are the vitamins and minerals, have you got yeah. any key uh, supplements that you think are really important for, for such as um, L-carnitine and other aminos or other, other. Well, that, those, those could definitely help. And I think they need to be further studied. I just still think that absolute key one, for a whole bunch of reasons, is vitamin D. Yeah. Um, like, if, and strangely, like you guys are in Queensland, mm-hmm. like a quarter of Queenslanders are deficient in vitamin D. Like, you, how would you that be humanly possible? It's like actually sunny there. Mm. Uh, no, not here where <laughs> I am, but where, where, <laughs> um, but where you are, and and, and so they're, they're deficient in this. Now, um, I mean, vitamin, but supplementation can, can certainly help. I reckon it's worth exploring, especially in the current COVID thing as well. So, look, here's a few things. First of all, you talk about vitamin D as a cofactor. So you can think about it as a hormone in glucose uptake. So low vitamin D is insulin resistance. Uh, you get enough vitamin D, um, then glucose is getting across the cell wall as it's supposed to. Uh, so that's, that's the first thing. Um, and, and perhaps that's why it's critical in things like there was a randomized trial published last week uh, to do with COVID survival. Now, get this, uh, because if this was anything else, people would be like jumping up and down. This is the biggest topic ever uh, mentioned in recent times. So they do a randomized trial. They get 76 people, I think. They, it's a two-to-one randomization. So 50 people get the vitamin D supplementation. They're sick with COVID in hospital. Um, the remaining 26 get no supplementation. Uh, of those 50 who got the supplementation, one ends up in the ICU, none die. Of the 26 who didn't get the supplementation, 13 end up in the ICU and two die. Mm. Uh, you know, so, so the causal effects of a vitamin D supplementation on things like immune function, um, which is pushed to the extreme in that, that COVID uh, ICU and death example, 
has exactly the same principle for an athlete, um, for someone to maintain normal health, because you want a properly fully functioning immune system. And something on vitamin D now appears, appears to be like a, a crucial part of it. So, like, so, so I think the, the most deficient cofactor in modern humans is, is um, just getting enough sunlight uh, through vitamin D. And so you might need supplementation. Um, and there's, you know, I think the COVID example is good for the long, longer clinical trials. Um, and the other immune ones, just while we're on that, I think that have got uh, zinc and selenium are showing good effects and um, vitamin C is debatable. So yeah. uh, those ones. No other secret sports performance uh, supplements? I think the L-carnitine, like you talked mm-hmm. about, has potential. Paul Mason's always on to me yeah. to do a trial with that. Um, and... Did you actually try what Paul's been telling? Have you had a go with that? Have you? Um, I've always taken a bit of L-carnitine, but he also said yeah. that um, I'd be getting more than enough with the with the red meat that I'm having anyway. But I have got some yeah. liquid L-carnitine in there that also Peter Defty recommends as well. Yeah, so so I think those trials need to be done. But you know, as always, I think athletes, especially elite athletes, especially former elite athletes like yourselves, who are prepared to experiment that will be the will be the front edge but it, it takes a the, the trouble is guys in nutrition compared to drug research the costs of doing a randomized trial and something are actually quite high uh and, and like no, getting someone to fund these studies that have potentially important health effects is so hard mm. uh that I, I sort of fear most of them might get done. And the, the L-carotene one's a good one. And other than that. doing an obvious thing, the, the macronutrients of, of lowering carbs and, and having plenty of fat and protein, other than doing that, you know, we're talking about the micronutrients and things which is so individualized that really, even if there's a study that says we've got this outcome, it still needs to be a, well, you take it and see if you feel better or not. Like that's kind of with all these supplements, isn't it? Well, there's a friend of mine who's a professor of psychology at Canterbury University called Julia Rutledge, uh, and she does these sort of trials with micronutrient supplementation and anxiety and depression, especially with uh, teenagers. Mm. And so she just ends up giving them these mega dose of basic stuff that comes in animal products. So you've got zinc, calcium, uh, iron, uh, B12, folate, uh, vitamin D, some of these things. And it has a clinically positive effect on the symptoms of these diseases things that don't respond well and and uh, has has a cure potentially curative effect as well what's interesting is that their serum levels of those bears no resemblance to the person who responds or doesn't respond so who knows what's going on there you know maybe measuring these levels in the blood has nothing nothing to do with what's in the actual cell uh and, and these things so it's such an infancy of trying to understand how to interpret a blood test and what that means. And as you say, like try it and see what happens. Yeah, that's what I, I did leave that out of what I just said before, that even yeah. if you go and get a blood test, it's only it's not really showing what's up in the cellular level. And so most of the time it's not helpful. We just take, don't know. Take a supplement, see if you feel better. Um, yeah. And and not worry so much about the what the bloods say. Yeah. Although there's there's random chances of harm on some weird things like i've just been looking into this into uh you know like uh supplementation multivitamin supplementation with melanoma mm. uh you're at a higher risk <laughs> yeah. 
uh, we could talk but, about supplementation of of real food and using real food and so those obvious things and that's another question i wanted for you one last question you've you've seen so much and worked so much with um diets and everything um have you seen people struggling with weight loss and this would be my next recommendation for people who is is that they then try low lectin low oxalate food so basically cutting out a lot of those green veggies anything high lectin high oxalate have you seen any results from that or yeah no it's it's totally plausible um because you know you've you got these things that that affect um so what what pete's talking about for the rest of the listeners out there is that there's some components of food that people would describe as anti-nutrients and so that you eat them and they actually prevent the absorption of essential particularly micronutrients that's that's what you're saying right but plus the inflam- yeah. plus the inflammatory yeah. lectins or you know like well, well yeah but that's part of the process yeah. like, that's why they're anti-nutrients they prevent that thing and part of that process is inflammation and the question is if you stop eating those do you do you make progress that is a uh that's the million dollar scientific question uh, i reckon that's totally plausible mm. um, and i've seen instances where people have done that and have improved um of course, you've got to hold yourself accountable to the same standard that you criticize other people for. So, you know, criticize the saturated fat stuff and go, show me the trial results. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then I go, well, I need to show you the trial results. And until then, I've got to remain there. But so, yeah, it's totally conceivable that that's the case. And I think individually that can definitely help. And, and you know, it's the same on all sorts of things. Like there's, you know, like people get into these sort of FODMAPs diets because they've got sort of uh, too many sort of oleosaccharides that are promoting small bacterial intestinal overgrowth and they uh, it's really hard to diagnose and you stop that and you feel better uh, have trials been done on that no will they get done soon no these things cost millions of dollars no one funds them um, this is this is the perennial problem in, yeah. in nutrition research things to try so, yeah oh, things to try yeah so like also people think we know everything in nutrition uh, and, and you know like half the stuff you've asked today I think we're going alright that, that's a good good study yeah. that'd be awesome um, yeah, it would be great if we know that and then then of course you spend a decade studying then you go oh yeah it's more complicated than I thought uh, like everything so yeah it just keep, keeps unfolding but that's yeah. part of the journey I guess awesome I think we've taken up enough of your time and, and we've got so many good <laughs> so much great information from it James do you want yeah I feel like yeah. everyone would um, just want to hear more and more and more so we'll have to definitely have you really again, helpful <laughs> extremely helpful and oh, no, we, we've gone on a few rabbit holes here guys yeah. so hopefully that's all right with people but um, yeah it's sort of the yep like I, I, just one thing to finish on that guys like I, you know if you're listening to the stuff and and you're absorbing the stuff and you're interested in it like like fair to say i couldn't do that in my master's nutrition class that stuff Mm. they just go what are you talking about Mm. they wouldn't know what i was talking about um whereas i can have this level of conversation with you guys and and on a whole bunch of stuff you know more than me we can have intelligent in-depth conversations everything from practice to physiology to exercise science to athletes to you know liver function uh, and to me this is the great joy of of the way the world's unfolded through this whole, whole sort of podcast thing and the, mm. a network of informed people that that's, that's actually what my one hope now that would actually change the world uh, is that, that that will keep happening so you know it, it is a sort of 
weird world when this is happening, right? (laughs) This wasn't available. There wasn't, these weren't topics in society. No, you'd be normally locked away in a university class. Yeah, I'd write some published papers and you you couldn't even read them. You couldn't even access (laughs) them. So, uh, and and no one would ever read them really. So yeah, it's it's a funny world. We'd have to find our way to the Auckland University Library and and request it to be read. And they wouldn't let you in. You wouldn't have a card. You wouldn't, you wouldn't get through the door, you know. So you've got you've got four four awesome books, um, Precure, and you know, give yourself a bit of a plug as we uh, finish off. What else do you want to plug? Uh, yeah, I, well, I think Precure is really the thing um, for me. So you know, hell bent on on trying to get people into the health system that actually care about health. Now, doctors, every doctor and every nurse starts and deeply does care about health, but the system pushes them so far away from that. By the time you're in your 50s and been working for 30 or 40 years, you're actually divorced from that and your day-to-day job has nothing much to do with health. It's mostly to do with sickness. And so with pre we're really working towards a sort of whole idea of health coaching as a genuine profession. You know, something that people that actually care about health can take up and they can connect with. And, and the tools to learn how to connect with people is, is a thing. So we've got into that. Um, and as I alluded to before, then I started trying to teach these advanced certificates in nutrition at Precure because I can actually do so much more with people who are so much more interested than I can with, with, with uh, uni students at any level, actually. So that's, that's been my thing. Uh, just finished another book, actually. Just finished the manuscript with Karen Zinn called What the Face, believe oh, it or wow. not. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sort of a weird combination there, but it's been thoroughly interesting is that it, it's... I sort of discovered these studies where people were interested in, you know, they just line up people's photos and go, how old do you reckon they are? People go, oh, 43, 26. And, and the judgment of their actual age, their actual age minus their perceived age, was their best predictor of, of um, overall health and, you know, early death and everything. So, so how they looked on the outside was a massive predictor of how they looked on the inside. So the, what the face is really about sort of skin, hair, all that sort of stuff, but it's exactly the same message, just a different way of getting that across because of, you know, you know your skin gets glycated. That's why you get wrinkly, mm. loose skin. Uh, you don't have a good lipid layer as a waterproof layer on your skin because you don't eat good quality fats, then your skin becomes dry and brittle. So that, that's just been a different way of approaching that. I learned so much. Okay. Uh, oh, that's so awesome. you could conceivably call it a beauty book, but actually it's, um, it's actually um, being healthy on the inside as well. I think that might have the biggest impact on people change, making a change because people care about their appearance so much. That's right. That's why I did it. Yeah. That's why we did it because we're like, I'm just looking for these different angles. And I think that actually is an angle. Um, mm. It's a real angle. Uh, it, yeah, it's an amazing thing, but entirely logical, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait to read it. No, it's good. It's just, it's just where the editor is actually making it read even better than it did. So yeah. hopefully it's going to come back in, in good state. Um, and yeah, so that's just been that's been another little project. Awesome. And uh, we'll go. Uh, the other thing we're doing with Precure that's just worth thinking about is, um, and you can do them for free. But we're we're starting these sort of three week micro challenges. It's a diabetes one at the moment, but I'm I'm keen over the next year or two to have like a whole suite of these from everything from. I just want to do a little bit more micro learning, but you know something like, uh, you know, I just got into this cold water therapy stuff mm. uh, and and the sort of metaphor that provides for something like anxiety and depression management uh, just to do a little micro learning challenge on that and and then I'll you know, do one on fasting do one on uh, math exercise yeah those sort of things just to get people who have been out of learning for a while but wanted to try it on themselves and just you know do a little bit of learning I think that's 
that's going to be fun. Yeah, no, that was good. And I, I signed up to have a look at the, the system and the, the pre-diabetes free yeah. learning. And uh, yeah, it's been great. Yeah, you've got 550 people doing that, that little uh, diabetes challenge at the moment. It's quite good fun. So yeah, yeah. it's all, all good. Uh, awesome. Yeah, so it's growing the interest in, in being healthy. Thanks so much, Grant. It's been unreal. Thanks so much for your generous time. Um, you know, really, really appreciate it. And so does all the listeners. We always get feedback, a lot of feedback from all our podcasts. So really oh, Thanks it. for doing, doing, doing what you're doing. It's all good. And, and yeah, because I could talk about this for like hours. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much again, Grant, for joining us. That was awesome. We look forward to having you again in the future. Or we might have your beautiful wife, Louise, on in the future. And that is who we contacted when we said, tell us a bit more about Precure because by your own admission, you aren't the greatest salesperson. So Louise let us know about Precure and Precure is a health coaching business for health coaches. So Precure plus you equals a healthy future. Become the CEO of your own health and wellness business by becoming an accredited professional health coach. Precure is where you'll find Australia's best health coach training, business support and a community of people just like you. Go to precure.com and find out more. And that might be people just like you and just like Jamie and I who are definitely looking into this accreditation because it's an awesome business and Grant and Louise are incredibly smart and friendly and helpful people. So we're looking forward to going on this journey with Precure. Hopefully we'll see you there.